it? Okay, is that going? That's going, okay. So we will get those posted pretty quick. Give me a day or two. So have you guys had a great day? Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. I wanna congratulate your team here because I really love that you've given some room for respite and for Sabbath. I think that's really a powerful thing. I, um, I'm gonna go home rested, which is very <laughs> crazy. I've got a really busy week coming up speaking wise and I had just figured that I was just gonna be on the treadmill and running like a crazy person until next Sunday and instead, you guys have created a stream in the desert, and I really appreciate that. And I hope that you guys go home and to your responsibilities and your roles better rested as well as a result. Who did the zip line? I'm so impressed. Wow. Allison, you slacker. Who did the upside down zip line? Oh, wow. Oh, look. I didn't see it. That's very impressive. And y'all did it. And these folks did it. Yeah, that was very graceful, wasn't it? It had all kinds of artistic interpretation into it. <laughs> feels more like, yeah, feels a little more, uh, yeah, frantic than that. Well, I did not do the zip line. I um, continued my research as to why I should never be left alone, unmonitored with Diet Coke and Pringles. That's what I did. So. And we've now reestablished um, why I should not be left alone with Diet Coke and Pringles. It was not pretty. <laughs> it was not pretty. But we're going to continue tonight. We talked last night about the call and the mandate of leadership on all of God's women. And we talked earlier today about what leadership looks like for a woman, how she can influence, even if she doesn't have title or position, how she can have influence. Our key verse for this entire weekend has been from Judges 7, verse 17, and it's where Gideon says, follow my lead. And last night we unpacked the process that he went through to actually get to the place where he could be a leader and be a mighty warrior. He had to deal with some stuff in his life. He had to let God call him out of what his comfort zone was. He had to make his excuses and kind of wander through, and God just remained patient. God waited. Because God was determined that Gideon was going to understand that he was to use his influence to help the nation of Israel. And then this morning we talked about Abigail. And we deconstructed a little bit in her story in Samuel the incredible wisdom that she used when she was standing between two extremely upset, angry guys and how she navigated those waters for peace and ended up becoming a queen as a result of what happened of all of that and the incredible influence that she used the wisdom and the power that she used to walk into her destiny with the Lord. Tonight, I think a critical part, if we have, hopefully you've grabbed on and said, yep, I have a responsibility to be leading. I have a responsibility to be influencing within my community, within my church, within my home. I, I get it. I'm buying in. Hopefully you've bought into that. Hopefully you picked up some tools today as we talked about Abigail and we took a look at how she influenced and how she led. Hopefully you've got some tools in your toolbox from that. But tonight I want us to unpack who am I leading? Because if we don't understand who we're supposed to be leading, then we may not get very far in terms of influencing people for Jesus because we may just not have a good grasp of who it is that we're supposed to be passionate about the Lord for, being an example for, encouraging them to be imitators of Christ as we imitate Christ. Who are we leading? <coughs> you know, I started my mothering career when I was pretty young. 
and I look at the first five kids or so and I think, man, we were like, we were like young and we were busy and we were active and we were playful. And you know, then you, you start getting a little um, tired. And those twins, my last children, the seventh and eighth, by the time I had twins, I thought I had it figured out with six. Like I thought I was pretty, you know, all right, I got this thing down. I know how to like subtly nurse. I know how to change a baby on a booth in a restaurant so nobody notices. Y'all didn't know I did it, see? You didn't know. I, I, mean, I had all those little procedures figured out. But when I had twins at 40, it kicked my hiney. Two of them at the same time playing off each other. They're completely different. Allison spent a lot of time with them. They look completely different. They act completely different. One's a girl, one's a boy. I, they are so different. And it really kicked my tail. They never slept on the same schedule. They never ate on the same schedule. They didn't develop similarly at similar times. I mean, they are just so, so different. And I really worked to still try to be that energized, engaged mom. But it was taking a level of caffeine abuse that was probably inappropriate <laughs> completely. But I feel like, I'm like, you know, but I think, we, I think we navigated it. Like, you know, hopefully they still feel like they kind of had the young, cool, hip parents. I mean, I realize we're the older parents now, but, but hopefully they still feel like they got that. We were studying for homeschool one day, and we were doing some history, and I had Mercy, the girl twin. She was working on some stuff, and, and I went to help her brother on something, and I came back, and I said, so what are you studying about in your history book right now? And she said, oh, I'm studying about presidents, and I'm studying about George Washington. I had a question. I said, yeah, Mercy. She said, now, how old were you when he was president? <laughs> uh, well, honey, uh, and you know, it just kind of eliminated any concept I had that maybe she saw me as possibly younger, um, that she would think that I was around during, you know, his particular presidency. I just, wow, wow. It dawns on me that I am almost the age now that my grandmother was when I was born. She became a grandmother close to my age. And I look at the pictures of her holding me and bathing me, her first grandbaby, and to me, it just seems like she's got such wisdom on her and things. She's lived some life. She's done all this. And I look at myself at the same age, and I'm like, oh, wow, I don't know that I feel that way about myself. And yet I'm aware that just like my daughter Mercy is looking at me thinking maybe I was around during George Washington, <laughs> there are probably other people in my world who are looking to me who assume that I've had life experience, that I have something that might be valuable to them or something that they can ask me about. Do you realize every single one of you, no matter the age you are, you have somebody looking to you. They are observing how you're handling things. Whether you want to be or not, you're leading somebody. And you need to get to know who that is. Because it could just be that God has called you specifically to be an influence in their life. And if we don't understand who it is that we are potentially leading and who is seeing us as having wisdom, we could really miss something that we were supposed to be involved in for the kingdom. I told y'all earlier that I, I love George Barna. I think he's a fascinating guy. He writes and studies and has all kinds of statistics on different things within the modern church, within populations. He helps us understand a little bit about what we're seeing, trends that we're seeing, things that are going on within the body of Christ. And he had a study that came out recently that talked about millennials. Now, Howe and Strauss are sociologists who have identified millennials as people who were born between, say, 1984 and 2004. 
which means I have six of these millennials living in my house. <laughs> six of them. And so in terms of looking at a generation, for a lot of us, some of you may actually be in that zone. Allison, you were born in what, uh, 2000 yeah. what? I know, baby, that's why I hang out with you. You're practically a grandma, 77. <laughs> Who here was born in the 80s, mid-80s? Okay. Right. Okay. So, you're almost a 90s baby. So, I mean, y'all are, y'all are the next generation of the church. I mean, you are it. You are our people. And the thing that is really a bit alarming in what George Barna's studies have revealed is that Six out of ten people will walk out of the church of the millennial population and they'll never come back. Six out of ten. Why? Why do they walk out? We know it's really easy for us to go, well, you know, these kids today. These kids today. I know that Jimmy Myers, who I teach with some, he is a psychotherapist in Austin. He and I teach on marriage and family quite a bit. I know he had a hat of this sort, and I think my husband Mike had one too, and I think it's hilarious. The bill of the hat was really big, and it said, I'm their leader, which way did they go? <laughs> which that's how I feel when I go to Costco with my kids. But, but isn't that a truism for what's going on today? in this next generation that we were supposed to be leading and they're leaving. Which way did they go? And why? Sometimes when I hear people talk about this generation that's beginning to just disappear from the church, they blame that generation. <laughs> Time out, friends. Whose watch was it on? Us. It was on our watch. And I have some ideas as to why I think it's happening. Of those within this millennial generation, they are extremely civic-minded. This is not a generation that doesn't care. That is not true. This is a generation that cares deeply. If you want to talk love and compassion and all that stuff, great. Show me what you're doing for the community you live in, is what millennials are telling us. Don't just sit in your church building. What are you doing for the community you live in? Are we leading through being civic-minded? Are we making a difference in our communities? Because millennials will be involved in that if we give them the opportunity. What are we doing to be civic-minded? Those six out of 10 tell us that church simply isn't relevant anymore. They can have a personal relationship with the Lord outside of a church community. And they're right, they can have a relationship with the Lord outside of a church community. But that word community, this is really interesting. To millennials, community is so key. It is so important to them. And they're not talking about, when we talk about church community, we're like, you know, when you come to church on Sundays, church community. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about living life with people. They're talking about us as women sewing into them. They're talking about, hey, I was raised in a divorce situation. I haven't seen a healthy marriage. Can you show me? Can you give me some ideas? Can you live in community with me on this new marriage so I know what to do? Well, hey, I, I was an only child, and now God's called me to have a bigger family. I, I need community to help me know how to raise kids. Specific points of connection. Not just a group of people who show up at the same building, but community where we care about each other 
and we care about the ages and stages that we're involved in. Another thing that millennials tell us that they are leaving the church over is moral failure by religious leaders. Moral failure by religious leaders. And I get it. Within the last year and a half, we've had four or five really well-known religious leaders who were in the news for being religious leaders and being very influential, leaders influential, caught in extramarital affairs. What does that say to the next generation? What does it say? What it says is hypocrisy. And what millennials tell us over and over is they have no appetite for hypocrisy. None. My husband and I, because we have six millennials living in the house, we watched with a lot of interest when all of this Josh Duggar stuff went down. Are you familiar with the Josh Duggar situation? Okay. So we have a family who has a huge platform. They've got a national television show. They are extremely conservative in their beliefs. Boom, 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 boom. And then the oldest son has a massive moral failure. And my husband at the time said, Now, kids, listen, your mom and I lived through the Bill Clinton era. And I'm telling you, this will go away. This will, this will pass over. I mean, this is just one of those things that probably, at the end of the day, people just kind of get over it. And my kids were like, I don't think so, Dad. I don't think so. I don't think so. Mike said, look, I'm telling you, if there was ever a situation, Clinton falling and tripping over a Lewinsky in national <laughs> office, this is the one. And believe me, if it's managed correctly, you know what? Millennials were incensed by that entire debacle. It hasn't gone away. It's gained speed. Why? Is it because my kids are super judgmental? Because that's the other thing that millennials tell us is they're tired of all the judgmentalism. I don't think it's that my kids are all that judgmental. I think it's just they're saying, look, if you're going to stand up and you're going to make all these statements about traditional marriage and blah, 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 and kind of marginalize people in the doing, then you darn well better be living what you say you're living. And they have no appetite for the hypocrisy. Now, am I trying to throw this kid under the bus? I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. What I'm trying to do is unpack how we see these things. And I'm trying to help us understand how the generation we're supposed to be leading sees these things. It's very, very serious. Millennials are very sincere about the integrity of their leadership. And while you may say, well, kids today just don't want to know, they just don't want to know, I'm sorry, that is not what I find. When I run surveys on my young women at my church, and we have a large church, so I have a nice big platform I can check on, do you know what they tell me they want? They tell me they want mentors. So don't tell me they don't want to be led. It's not true. They tell me all the time, I want a mentor. But listen what they want a mentor for. Show me how to lead a meaningful life. Show me how to lead a meaningful life. Part of Barna's research that was really fascinating about millennials, he really broke down, okay, so exactly what is it in the church experience that you're wanting to have? Like, like what is that? And millennials responded to him and said, well, you know what? We really love those kind of traditional sacred spaces. Stained glass and kind of quiet and kind of echoey and kind of gothic. They like that. They like that a lot. But they want it within the context of a very laid-back community, and they want it in flip-flops and shorts. So do you know what that tells me? 
Millennials are searching for a sacred authenticity. They love the signal of a sacred place, but they also love the signal of saying, look, we're going to be real here. You can wear what you wear to Walmart or Target, and you are welcome here because we believe in sacred authenticity. And unfortunately, when we talk about mentoring, when we talk about creating sacred places, when we talk about all these things within the church and the church context, we, I believe, have gotten so sidelined and gotten so worried about do's and don'ts and traditions and on and on and on and on that we are missing what the next generation is telling us, which is really the most important thing. People want to know how to lead meaningful lives. They don't want to know what your dress code is to come in the door. They want to lead meaningful lives, and they're looking to us to know how to do that. And sometimes we're just missing the question for them. Now, another thing that we've definitely learned, I, I work with several millennials within ministry and entrepreneurially and within the nonprofit that I'm a part of. And my husband and I came of age in what I, we were called the yuppies. Got any yuppies in the room? Yeah, okay. So we believed that workaholism was a virtue. I mean, we were the generation that would go and work 80 hours a week and not be paid overtime or anything like that. I mean, you would just go and work and work and you'd work Saturday and Sunday and on and on. And Allison will tell you I am still not over it, and I'm not. It's an issue. It was a virtue for my generation. Working with millennials, part of what is fascinating, they can be very passionate about what they're doing. But when we hit 40 hours, they're done, thank you very much. <laughs> and not because they're lazy. Because they watched all of us who were yuppies and just poured all this time and effort and all this loyalty into a company that, oh, sorry, we, we took an IPO and sold it, and you don't have a job now. <laughs> and they're looking at that going, what did your 80 hours a week get you? We're working 40, and then we're going to go volunteer, and we're going to do things for our communities, and we're willing to live a reduced lifestyle to have a life is what millennials are telling us. And so let me tell you this. If you're going to lead a group of millennials and you're going to say, could you please come help with a women's event? It'll take two hours this one week. Let me tell you what integrity looks like to a group of millennials. That means that you honor that you said two hours that one week. Not that evangelistic thing we do where it turns out being 10 hours for two weeks and then that whole weekend and oh, could you please hot glue these 5,000 things on this bag? Because that's really not integrity, is it? We said two hours this one week. And if we want millennials involved, then we have to honor what we said. Do what you say and say what you mean. Being leaders for a millennial generation is like being a missionary. And the challenge is we've made so many mistakes at times within the missionary context. At its best, what being a missionary means is it means I go to you and I listen to who you are and I share with you the message of Jesus Christ. But I honor you within the context of where you are. Instead, mistakes we have made in the past as missionaries is we would go to far off places and we would take our American culture with us. And when they weren't living according to our American culture, we decimated economics, family groups, 
all kinds of things, left children without dads because we would walk into a village that practiced polygamy and we would decide, today, this has to stop. Instead of going, okay, so we're going to have some social context we're going to need to work on here. We're going, to have, we're going to let the love of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus work on this. And instead, we kept trying to make that culture what we understood to be our culture. And then we called it saved. Instead of saying we took the news of Jesus to them within their context, we tend to make the same mistake with millennials. Well, when I was a girl, when I was a young mother, <laughs> this is how we did church. Well, are you a missionary or not? Well, you know, if these millennials would just come to the church, they would see, are you a missionary for Jesus or not? Do you want to lead people to the Lord or not? Are you willing to go and learn about the culture they are part of? and to understand what their generation is. Because here's the deal. Millennials are quite aware we have no business trying to fix their generation because we haven't fixed our own. Our generation has been the one that has had many more divorces. Our generation has been the one that has experienced far more addiction. Our generation has been the one that has had more kids walk away from the Lord. So we have no business going in and griping about this present generation when we had a hard time leading our own generation. Now, is this to condemn or make anybody feel bad? No, I'm just telling you what a millennial sees. And my grandmother is 97, and she truly is part of that greatest generation. She really is. She survived the Depression as a child. She went through World War II as a young woman, as a young mother with her brother-in-laws going off to war, and on and on and on. Wow, the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw calls them in his book. That generation did something, right? Really amazing. But let's face it, my generation hadn't really done a lot. <laughs> I mean, we had the Whitewater scandal. That was kind of cool. Um, we haven't done a lot. We didn't really do the hard stuff and prove ourselves, right? And so in order to be relevant and in order to speak into the lives of these millennials, we need to get real clear on how to lead people into leading meaningful lives. Because they're not going to listen to us, perhaps like the generation that we were part of listened to that greatest generation. Because we haven't done what that greatest generation did. We just didn't do it. How are we to be worth following? How are we to be worth following? As I told you, the research I've done indicates that that millennial generation does want mentoring. They really do. They are not rejecting us because we're older. And we have discovered, the Lord bless it, that granny panties are so comfortable. <laughs> Never going back. <laughs> Never going back. They're not rejecting us because of that. Not at all. And the reason I know this is because of Dos Equis. The most interesting man in the world. Can you imagine how that marketing meeting must have gone down in New York? Got this great idea for your beer company. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get this guy. He's going to be a 76-year-old actor. Like our demographic is to pitch the millennials, right? Okay, cool, cool. Okay, so we're going to get this 76-year-old actor. And what we're going to do is we're going to tell people in advertising that he really actually doesn't like that product all that much. But when he drinks beer, 
he drinks your product. <laughs> They're going to love it. Like, it makes no sense from a marketing standpoint, right? And yet it's been a wildly successful marketing campaign. A 76-year-old actor, and he goes in, and he doesn't even try to dress like he's some hippie, right? He's got kind of a James Bond vibe going on. He's just kind of cool. It's all fine. It's all fine. Why does it work? Because he encapsulates in this character the most interesting man in the world. That he has led a meaningful life and that somehow at the age of 76, he's still vibrant. He's still out there. He's still hanging out with people. He's still connected those multi-generationally. You know, when things get a little tough, you just go salsa. I mean, this is what a millennial generation wants to know. How do I set up my life so that when I get to the three quarters of a century mark, I'm still in the game. I'm still part of it. I still have something to offer. And that is why that marketing has worked. Because we have a generation that hasn't been led much at all. Because we've been so wrapped up in our own issues. And all it takes is a 76-year-old guy who's marketed to look like he has it all together. And everybody gets a little bit fascinated. He's compelling. He's adventuresome. He can navigate between the generations, and it makes him worth following in the eyes of young people. Well, thankfully, God gave us a most interesting man in the world. I love Caleb. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He's an absolutely fascinating guy. And he was a guy who led the next generation well because he understood who they were and he understood how to walk fully and who God called him to be. I want us to look at Numbers 13. Caleb was 40 at this point. He's one of the guys who comes out of Egypt with Moses and they're on their way to the promised land. And Moses says, okay, I need a recon team to go into the promised land and take a look around, tell me who's in there, tell me what the resources are like, give me a good lay of the land. And so Joshua and Caleb and ten other guys go into the promised land and they take a look around. And when they come back out after spying to tell Moses what all has gone on, and they begin to make their report, what they're told, what these first ten are told in verse 27 of chapter 13, those other ten, they say, we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey, and here's some of its fruit, but the people who live there are powerful, the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites are living there in the Negev. Just, you know, there's no way. There's no way we can go and take that land. And in verse 30, Caleb silences the people before Moses. And he says, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we certainly can do it. In the midst of a whole majority saying, there's no way we can do this, Caleb is the one who says, oh yeah, we can. God told us we could do this. We can do this. We can do it. We discover that he's 40 years old at the time. And we also discover that it's the tendency of those of us who've been around a while to want to say, you know, I think we should stay with what's safe and known. Like, I mean, it's worked for us to just wander around. I really don't know that we need to go in there and deal with all those issues. So 
of his generation is saying, ooh, that seems hard. And Caleb at the age of 40 is willing to say, we can do this. We can do this if we want to. And what the Lord says about him in Numbers 14 in the next chapter in verse 24, and I have this highlighted and a big heart around it, and if there's a legacy I want to leave, it's embedded in this verse. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land. Those doubters never got to experience the promised land. It was only Joshua and Caleb who said, we do think we can do this. We do think we can take what God has promised, who are actually able to enter the promised land. And what God says about Caleb is that he has a different spirit. Different. If we're going to lead the next generation successfully, if we're going to speak into their lives, if we're going to mentor them effectively, we've got to have a different spirit than most of the people around us. And understand, it wasn't like Joshua and Caleb were the only believers and these other eight guys were like followers of Baal or something. No. They were Israelites too. But it was only two guys who bore a different spirit in terms of belief about what God had had to say to them. A different spirit. So how do we do this? How do we remain relevant? How do we remain connected? What are some of the things that we need to do as women of influence to make sure we're staying engaged and plugged in? I tell you one of the first things I think we need to do, we need to take care of ourselves. We really need to take care of ourselves. And yes, I mean physically, but I also mean mentally. I mean emotionally. I mean about what we speak over ourselves. Have you ever noticed how there just comes a certain age, click, and all of a sudden, you and your friends are always talking about your joints, and I don't mean this kind, I mean this kind. <laughs> all your joints, and how things are feeling, and how your body's changing. I mean, I get it. It's real, it happens. Our bodies slow down. But why are we talking about it all the time? Why are we confessing it all the time? And what is it saying to the generation we're supposed to be leading? Yeah, and just, uh, uh, follow me, hang on. Uh, all right, come on. Just walk slow. I mean, what are we saying? I believe that we have available to us, if we will take it, that different spirit of Caleb that allows for something very unique. We're told later in the book of Joshua that he, now 45 years later, so by the way, just because God didn't do something when you thought you were in the prime of your life, whatever that's supposed to mean, does not mean he's not going to do it. When Caleb is 85, he reports that he is just as fit and ready to go as he ever was. He's fit and ready to go. Let's do this thing. We also need to speak over ourselves that this too is our day. I don't know where we got the notion that 1984 was my day and now it's gone. Because I'm here now in 2015. This is still my day. It is still your day. Regardless of the birth year you were born in, you're here. You're here. This is your day. Your day. And when we keep saying, oh, how it used to be. Well, back when I was a young mother, 
Now, is there wisdom to be gleaned from the lives that we've lived? Absolutely, that's fantastic. But not to be pining for how things were, to be speaking innovation, to be passionate about reaching the next generation. The Lord had to really work me over on this pining thing that goes on sometimes. We have this women's event that I told you about called Immerse, and this is our third year. And just like every year, I am chewing my fingernails off and abusing Diet Coke and Pringles <laughs> privately. Because in Austin, it's just weird. People just don't commit to coming to stuff. It's the strangest experience. I have ministry peers who are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and in Houston, and they're like, hey, you guys, you know, like, I need a room for us coming. And they sell out three months ahead of time. You know, they got people on waiting lists. In Austin, it's like, it's about 14 minutes before that thing at that Life Austin church. I think I'll go. I mean, so every year, it's just like... <laughs> Because you're wanting to be a good steward, you're wanting to plan well, you're wanting to do all those things, and Austin just like, man, commitment issues over and over and over. So I was praying to the Lord and I was saying, I cannot wait until Austin comes to the place spiritually that it's like a Dallas, Fort Worth, or it's like a Houston, where we get immersed going and people just sign up three months ahead of time. The Lord said, whoa, 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 whoa. And he just dropped in my heart. He said, look, Austin is more representative of where this world is at and where this nation is at. And what you need to be looking for and what you need to be asking me for are the innovations, the new ideas, the ways to reach the women of Austin, because those are ideas that can be used in a nation that is becoming far removed from the Bible Belt experience we've had in the past. It does no good for me to pine about what it might be in Houston or what it might be in Dallas-Fort Worth. God's called me to Austin. And in Austin, I need to pay attention to what those people in Austin and that generation is telling me and not pine for something that is not the territory that I've been given. You know, the other thing that I think we can do when we want to lead in this next generation under this idea of taking care of ourselves is we need to transmit vibrancy we do need to be interesting. We do need to stay current. And sometimes one of the simplest things we can do is just have a pleasant countenance. Mike and I, Mike is a very smiley guy. He's like Buddy the Elf. Smiley's his favorite. <laughs> smiley's just his favorite. I mean, somebody can actually be telling something Mike kind of sad. And Mike's like, they're like, no, no, honey, take, take it down. Take it down. He's just very smiley. Just very, very smiley. And Mike has taught me to be more aware of my countenance, to be more smiley and approachable. We were in Las Vegas. Mike was speaking in Las Vegas a couple of months ago. And Las Vegas is supposed to be like within the secular world, right? Like the most amazing place. I just thought it was kind of flat and hot and really hot, really, 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 really hot. But the thing that was fascinating to me as we sat, and Mike says hi to everybody. He's like, hi, hi, hi. People, people think he's got... Like, he scares people, actually. <laughs> but as I'm watching people's countenance in what's supposed to be secularly the most amazing place, right? People are just uh, uh, wandering through, exhausted. Amusement parks, you see people with these dropped countenances. SeaWorld, dropped countenances. Church, dropped countenances. Sometimes one of the most innovative things we can do is look like 
God's people of joy. Not just in here, here. Does it show on your face? That's what makes you ageless to a millennial generation. That's what makes you the most interesting woman in the world with a different spirit like Caleb. So fascinating. In Joshua 14, that passage I was telling you about where Joshua says, hey friends, I am 85 years old and raring to go, thank you very much. I want us to look at his exact words. Verses 10 through 12, now then just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses that we would go into the land while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. This is in Joshua 14, verses 10 through 12, and you want to mark this in pink. I am still just as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm still just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country. Okay, for those of us who live in Austin, it has a lot of meaning. Give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. He's ready to take a bunch of next geners into battle. Because you know what Caleb did? So many of us age with the goal of getting comfortable. So many of us age with the goal of making life more and more comfortable. And we forget we were created for battle. The millennial generation does not need a group of leaders to teach them how to be more comfortable. The millennial generation needs a group of leaders to teach them how to do battle. Because I have news for you. This world is not getting sparklier. Sin is not on vacation. We have to stay active and battle ready so we can show them how to stay active and battle ready. Two more things on Caleb. He is confident in the circumstance. He is confident in the circumstance. If we're going to speak to this next generation, we have to stay confident in the circumstance. How much negativity do I hear people in my generation and older spewing all the time about this world? You would think God has gone to sleep, is on a coffee break, accidentally got locked in the bathroom. Well, this world is just so, it's just so dark. It's just, uh, stop it. Speak God's truth to this generation. If you're already defeated, why should I follow you? But if you understand the victory of what God offers, well then, then you're worth following. Something under this idea of being confident in the circumstance, we've got to be so intentional to quit confusing transparency and whining. They are two different things. Challenges in your marriage. Fine, be transparent. You know, my husband and I struggled with that. This is how we prayed. These were some of the things that God showed us to do. We still don't have it all together, but we're making progress. A millennial generation is ready to hear that. Well, we have problems in our marriage. You know, we haven't been happy for, I don't know, 17 years, 42, no, I'm sorry, 43 weeks, um, five days and 47 minutes. I'm just being transparent. No, you're whining. Sorry, you're whining. And why should I follow that? Because I want to know how to lead a meaningful life. Not a middling life. A meaningful life. To be confident in the circumstance. 
well, these kids and all this new technology, just, you know. Guess what? That new technology is where they live. Do you care about the next generation? Then you need to care about where they live. And yes, a lot of their lives are lived digitally, and it's not going away. We had a, we had a throw down a few years ago within a youth group that I was like, we had a group of parents who decided that teenagers should not be on their apps, their Bible apps on their phone. They need paper Bibles. God bless it. I'm like, can we be excited they're on Bibles of any form? Wherever it comes from. I mean, if we're going to go old school, then let's just order in a bunch of scrolls. Okay? If we're going to go... Oh, heavens. Because this is the third thing that Caleb shows us, this man of a different spirit, is that our God does new things. Our God does new things. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the timeless one and the ancient one, but he's also creative. God's never gotten stuck. We're the ones that get stuck. And God forgive us. We make sacred things he never intended to be sacred before him. We've made such an idol of status quo. Well, at my church, you know, we had that building program in 82. And that's when we got this and that and the other. And I don't see any need for that to change. Well, well, who cares? (laughs) It's been around since 82. And why are we fighting over that? God gave his son, people, not his extra car, not a stock that he had that was kind of extra. He gave his son. If you gave your child to save a group of people and they were fighting about the seafoam green carpet in the lobby and calling it sacred, how do you think that would make you feel? Like maybe they've missed the mark? You know, we're told, Paul tells us, look, when I go to the Romans, I, I go as a Roman to win more for Christ. If the next generation, and we already know the odds are six out of ten are going to leave, if they're happier with painted concrete, paint the concrete, for heaven's sakes. Mm -hmm. Let it go. As our executive pastor says, there are just some sacred cows that need to be slaughtered, grilled up, and made into hamburgers. (laughs) Because here's the thing. If we are not willing to go where that generation is, then we're saying we don't care. We're saying our comfort, we're saying our status quo, we're saying what we feel the best about, what we're the most comfortable with, that we don't want change, then we're saying we don't care what happens to the next generation. And I don't want to stand before the Lord responsible for that. Do you? Do you? Caleb reflected an image of a creative God. Unless you be thinking I'm just spitballing here, I want us to look at Isaiah 42 and verse 9. Isaiah 42 and verse 9. For the Lord says, See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Let's look at Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. Forget the former things. Do not 
dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. If you're worried about this generation, if you think morally it's a wasteland, then let God do a new thing to create a living stream in the desert. Don't get in the way. Don't get in the way of what he's trying to do. Look what Peter had to look at in Acts 10 and verse 14. Peter had to be open to a new vision that this Jesus that he really thought had just come for the Jews. And so we were going to continue to have these dietary laws. We were going to carry on as before. We were going to do the things we'd been doing and add Jesus to it. And he's given a vision that says, I'm doing a new thing here. And now everybody has access to this salvation. And we're not going to get hung up on dietary law anymore. We're not going to do it. And Peter has to acclimate himself to that as a leader, as a person of influence. You know, part of where women benefited from Caleb being a reflection of a creative God, part of where women specifically benefited from Caleb being a guy who stayed vigorous who stayed in the game, who taught the next generation how to do battle. His daughter comes to him in Joshua 15. And she says, hey, Dad, you know, of this land that we've now gone in and taken, would you give me this part? And Caleb, for the first time that we see in biblical history in this new land, gives a woman who to this point had not had rights for property, and he gives her her own segment of land. He resources her because Caleb had a different spirit. When Mike and I got married over 26 years ago, Mike's great-grandmother, May Yates, she was born in 1912, and I just adored her. I thought she was just the coolest thing, and she became one of my very dear friends. I met her in the last season of her life. She was in her late 70s when Mike and I started dating, and she passed away when she was 96. Cup of coffee in her hand, red lipstick on, brain aneurysm, bam! I'm like, e-ticket, I want that deal. That was awesome. <laughs> and she went home to be with the Lord one day. But when Mike and I got married, Mike's grandfather had only been gone, he had passed about four years before. Mike had been exceptionally close to him, four or five years before, Grammy's husband. And the day that we married, his absence was very present that day. He had been such a hero in Mike's life. And I never got to meet him, but I missed him that day. And I knew, I knew Grammy was missing him. And I knew how deeply Mike was missing him. We got ready to, we got through the reception. And I'd just been kind of tender around Grammy the whole day. She'd been real smiley and looked so cute and was so sweet. But I'd just been tender around her. This was kind of one of the first big family events after Mike's granddad had passed for her. But as we were getting ready to get in the limo, Grammy pulled me aside. She pulled Mike aside. She said, come here, come here, I want to talk to you. And I just steeled myself because I didn't know, you know. It had already been a weepy kind of day. Mm -hmm. She gathered us up and she put her arms around us. And she said, look, there's something that I know your granddad would want you to know if he were here today. And so, come in. He's not, I mean, I'm all ready. She goes, okay. This is what your granddad would say to you today. Get on it. (laughs) 
different spirit. A different spirit. And for the next almost 20 years, who do you think I wanted to mentor me? Who do you think I went to for marriage advice and to understand how to support Mike in developing a new business and to understand the different things that Grammy had been through and all the experience that she'd had? It was her because she had a different spirit about her. She had a different spirit. What if we could have that kind of legacy for the next generation? We all pray with me. Father, help us understand who it is that we're leading. It's not just enough to begin to accept this mandate of leading and leading well and leading through influence. We need to understand who we're leading. And Father, give us a passion for this next generation. Holy Spirit, put a watch guard over our mouth when we begin to declare negatively about a generation. Father, soften the hearts of this next generation toward these amazing women of valor. Father, embed deeply in us a passion, a vision for helping this next generation learn how to do battle. Oh God, don't let us get comfortable. Keep us battle ready. And Father, would you infuse in us a different spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs>